thing about wildlife is that it the thing about wildlife is the thing about wildlife thing about wildlife is the thing about wildlife is feeling of interconnectedness that it's humbling is that it's insightful intriguing you belong it's about all of us always evokes a sense of wonder doesn't matter why you're here that's the thing about wildlife listeners i am ishika your host on the thing about wildlife welcome back to our new series the thing about pride these are episodes showcasing the work and lived experiences of queer or lgbtqia plus identifying persons in the fields of ecology and conservation on our third episode i bring to you a marine biologist and conservationist who truly wants to do it all and within the last decade has worked systematically towards making that a reality. Avik Banerjee is currently a project manager at Wildlife Conservation Society India's marine program. From understanding dolphin interactions with fishermen and studying octopus behavior to being part of a marine exploration team to the little known Angria Bank off the western coast of India, Avik shares several stories with us along with his lived experiences as a queer proud wildlifer. Here's the episode now. The thing about underwater explorations. Hey Avik, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. It's fantastic to have you on the thing about pride especially and there is so so much I want to talk to you about. You've had a wealth of experience especially in the marine sphere which is something I feel we simply do not talk enough about. So very very excited to dig into your entire lived experience underwater overwater everywhere so welcome hey thanks ishika i'm very grateful and happy to be a part of this i've been a long time follower and i'm quite excited uh, to be doing this and talking about some of my work and a little bit about um, a personal journey of sorts if we get into that but yeah thanks again very excited me too me too let's uh, let's jump right in and tell us right from the beginning avik what's your back story uh, you know where did your interest in wildlife emerge and even your interest in marines in the marine sphere did it start there when did that come in so this is a bit of a long story as i'm sure it it probably is for most people uh so i remember i actually started out going on these uh, wildlife camps um, i i was born and brought up in pune so you had maybe 2 3 of these small little ngo outfits that would do uh, these uh, nature tours and travels for school kids especially and i started as a camper and i remember being absolutely enamored with everything that i was seeing and it was mostly tiger reserves at that time you know uh, especially the ones in bandavgarh like uh, tadoba uh, sorry not in bandavgarh but in madhya pradesh like bandavgarh tadoba uh, all of these um, all, all the other ones nearby as well and I remember just thinking to myself because that's usually around the time that uh, kids uh, have to start thinking about their career. It's a little too early uh, to be doing that, but you have to make decisions. You need to decide what you're studying and what you prepare for. And I narrowed it down to maybe three things. Uh, one is something to do with wildlife. Uh, I didn't know what at that time. I just knew wildlife. Uh, the other was writing because I was interested in that, and I still am to some extent. I just haven't done much of it. Uh, and uh, being a professional chef, uh, that that's another of my personal uh, passions. But 
when the time came for me to decide what uh, like educational career, uh, what educational path to go down, I realized that writing and cooking, while there is immense value to getting degrees in that, uh, these are things that people can pick up uh, on their own to some level. You know, you can be an amateur at these things. You don't need a degree uh, to write for yourself, to write a blog, to write a small article even in a newspaper or something, and even cook for yourself at home. Um, you don't need a degree for that. But if I was serious about wildlife, I knew I didn't want to be someone who was just simply advocating for them. I wanted to be someone was more involved. So that kind of started it out. Uh, I thought perhaps um, tourism was a thing. That's where I began. Uh, I joined um, this place called Pugmox as an instructor. I went through a bit of training and I think for a good year, year and a half, I was um, with them. Um, this was all during, I think, 11th and 12th, perhaps, just after the 10th. Uh, and I remember thinking at that point that uh, there's not that much uh, of an impact that I personally can make. I'm sure people in tourism are making um, a much bigger impact, but uh, in terms of my own personal skills and what I can bring to the table, I realized that it likely wasn't tourism. I knew I wanted to be a little more hands-on with um, whether it be the ocean or the forest or the animals. From there, I joined the Pune Zoo uh, as a volunteer for a good year. Um, towards the latter part of my 11th and 12th. Um, and it was just normal volunteer stuff. I, I used to prepare food for the herbivores in there and uh, make rounds of the zoo, make sure enclosures were up to mark and everything. And here again, I realized that ex situ conservation, which all zoos are a part of, um, are quite limited in their capacity. They're great for education. They're great for Maybe in certain places, uh, if you really want to understand certain things about an animal uh, where you need to be up close with it, um, perhaps not behavior, but if you want to understand genetics or morphology or whatever it may be, it's great with that. But I had this drive in me at the time where I knew that, okay, no, I need to do something. I know that a lot of things are in peril. Uh, I would like to be a part of this uh, struggle to do something about it. Uh, so from there, I started volunteering with a lot of researcher conservationists. I use that word uh, very uh, miscibly because a lot of us do research, but it's on conservation. Uh, a lot of us are conservationists who do applied research. So uh, it, it is a very kind of um, interlinked uh, word. So I volunteered with a bunch of them during my undergrad, uh, during three years of that. And that's when I realized that, okay, I, this this seems to be what I want to do. Uh, I started my master's degree um, and um, yeah, I, I thought research, just pure research, ecological research was what it was for the first two, three years, perhaps. Uh, and then slowly I realized that no, I want, I want, I, I, I do want the research, but I'd, I'd, I'd rather be uh, a little more involved in the on-ground action. So today I like to call myself a conservationist who does uh, applied research. Uh, I, I find myself a lot more happier uh, doing a lot of the stakeholder engagement, um, a lot of the small interventions that NGOs can uh, do uh, towards conservation. So this is this is my happy place. Oh, that's lovely. That was actually so succinctly put. You took us through it all. <laughs> 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 nice, nice. No, but I think it's so wonderful that you had some of those early work experiences as well. Because I think for me, even though I had some, I like I was pretty sure I was interested in wildlife and animals in general. And even I couldn't really put my finger on what that meant in as a career. 
around that same age but it was uh, it wasn't until my bachelor's that i got any kind of experience in it and that makes such a world of difference it just starts to you know bring in the reality of the fact that you can actually have a career in this field so it's pretty cool that you had that so early and it's also interesting because i mean i think i've lost count of the number of people who uh, have had some early influences in pune and have in inadvertently ended up in uh, <laughs> in wildlife somehow or the other it's it, what do you think it is about what what is it about pune that does this to people uh, that that's actually a very interesting observation and uh, pune does tend to be one of the circles where you find a lot of people from our work circle is uh, coming from uh i think it's perhaps because we do have a pretty strong uh youth culture when it comes to environmentalism uh i won't say pune is the greenest city uh but you do have a lot of things that are very accessible you know like uh, uh the 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 tekdis and uh, the hills all around um, the western ghats and everything uh they're right there and uh, you have a lot of the colleges which do have degrees at the undergrad level like um environmental science what i did or zoology and i've noticed that these are the places that really cultivate uh this kind of ecosystem and i've seen it grow um because i remember when i was doing my undergrad there were maybe three or four good places at the time and now you can't count them uh whenever people reach out to me from pune saying that hey i'm someone early career young i i'd like some input i asked them why where are you studying and when they tell me i'm always surprised like oh wow this place also has uh, biodiversity or conservation or uh, environmental science or something very closely allied so i i think that there is an ecosystem like like you can also say there is something similar going on say in mumbai or bangalore even where you do have a lot of people uh, coming out of these circles um uh, I, I I suspect that's what's happening in Pune at least. No, that makes a lot of sense, and uh, especially if the youth themselves are coming together and making a lot of these things happen, and even outside of a classroom, those are just some great formative experiences to have. Especially if you have peers who are supporting and equally enthusiastic about it when you're young. but also speaking of things that probably started when you were quite young you know we've been discussing through this series on the pride in during the pride month about how very often we are figuring out what we want to do professionally while they're also navigating a lot of internal turmoil about personal identities so what was it like for you at what stage did that happened for you and uh, did did you see it start interacting with your professional choices early on when did when did that happen so that this is actually i think uh, an extremely extremely important question to be asking uh, people in uh, ecology so uh i i mean thinking back um, i i do remember realizing that so i mean i identify as gay uh, i i only like men uh and i remember thinking back to school uh there were times when i realized i do i have a crush on this boy but i was probably too young to really um identify it as that i thought that oh he's just nice to me and i went to all boys school which just made it so much more difficult you know uh, but uh i was pretty uh closeted to myself for the longest time you know um i i have been Uh, very fortunate in some aspects like you said i have had the advantage of a really good support circle peer circle 
that helped bring me into the wildlife community. But you know what Indian, um, traditional Indian families can be like, uh, you are expected to follow a certain script, which is very heteronormative. Uh, and there is no debate even, forget about the wiggle room. So uh, my parents are a lot more uh, um, progressive, but for them uh, to accept that the only child is potentially queer was a big thing. So I remember uh, just having this constant uh, thing in the back of my head that, oh yes, uh, I am going to grow up, marry a woman, uh, have at least one child, if not several, and and. That's the plan because that that's everybody's plan, isn't it? Um, uh, that that's the dream that uh, you're sold in books, in movies, from your uh, friends even quite often, your your aunties and uncles, the worst of the lot, uh, your parents uh, to to quite a degree also. So I always knew that there was some part of me that like men, I wasn't sure if it was just uh, me questioning it or if I was bisexual or. Uh, I remember back then I had no idea of the concept of pansexuality. Uh, the entire discourse around gender only came up about maybe in the last five, six years. But in the early 2000s, late 1990s, um, it, it wasn't really a thing. So I knew that, okay, I definitely like um, men to some degree, but let's see if it's just a phase. Maybe I can force myself to like women. Uh, and it just, just wasn't happening. You are who you are um, at the end of the day. And it was only after I came to Bangalore in 2015 that I realized that, okay, no, I, I don't like women. I uh, was I, I was seeing a girl even at the time, um, and I thought I genuinely was into her. Uh, and I know I did love her at the point, but it just wasn't the same kind of love that you would show someone that you are sexually interested in. Uh, it, it, it was extremely, extremely platonic. I just didn't know it at the time. Uh, so after... Things ended over there. I took some time and um, decided that, okay, before I uh, ruin my life and other lives uh, even more, let me just sit and uh, decide who I am uh, and what it is that I want um, for myself. And that, that's when I realized, that, okay, no, I, I definitely don't see any attraction uh, towards women. It's definitely just the men. Uh, and this was definitely 2015. Uh, I, I remember the year very well. Uh, so from there, it's been pretty much a journey also, which I'm still on. Uh, I don't think you ever finish uh, your queer journey, especially when you spend 20 odd years of your life uh, living repressed uh, for, for various reasons, your own fault, other society, whatnot, uh, lots of reasons. Uh, but yeah, it's 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 taken time. And I'm, I, I, I do wish I'd acknowledged it a little earlier, but... I'm still grateful for the journey I've had. Uh, I wouldn't be here if it weren't for that. I would be a totally different person. Thanks uh, for sharing, Avik. I think you brought out such an important point, which is to actually consider that ratio of time spent trying to be or being heteronormative until you figure this out. And there's also that in-between period where you're not sure and you don't know how to even perform on a day-to-day basis. And, uh, you know, I think it's it's so important to think of that because even if that realization kind of lands on you like a ton of bricks and you, you're you so, so sure, there's also so much unlearning to do if you've been brought up in a certain way, even if it feels so right later on. Um, so thank you so much for bringing that out as well. I think that's very, that's a very important perspective to have. Um, 
so what were your initial experiences in this intersection you know you like you said that you that ton of bricks fell on you when you had moved to bangalore <laughs> to begin your professional journey in this field and uh, you know having this hit you as a realization can be a lot of course and uh, can weigh very heavily so what was that like did that was that just personal for you was it something you dealt with internally how did it how did it go so initially it was very isolating as um, i suspect it is when most people start to come out to themselves first um, i i feel like the first step of your coming out journeys acknowledging it for yourself before you start talking to other people about it and i i don't know how long i spent uh, in this space but it it took me a while before uh, i could tell people about it um, there is this uh, perceived stigma uh, a lot of it is real uh, but quite often um, at least i have uh, had this tendency to um, maybe expand it a little bit in my head thinking that it's a lot more than it is but because of this i i just didn't tell people for a while and then i started telling a few people here and there uh, because i realized that okay i need to be open about who i am uh, i'm not, not someone who wants to go screaming from the rooftops uh, but at the same time i don't want to be lying about who i am i don't want to be hiding about it I, if if i'm ever seeing someone i don't want to have him be a secret that like him to be a part of my life my social circle uh, so i started telling people and initially yes there was a little bit uh, it 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 was i mean how do i put this there were a few hurdles uh, in the sense that you could tell that certain people very few thankfully in my um, experience uh, were quite uncomfortable with it once they realized it and some of them uh i've been very fortunate enough to be able to sit down with them and tell them that look i'm the same person that i was before i told you nothing has changed and this doesn't change our dynamic uh but there were some people who for whatever reason probably just need more time to wrap their minds around it and one initially it it, it was um a bit of a deterrent to tell more people that um, i i was always worried that oh what if i lose my friends and um and then end up with very few um, of the initial lot and then i realized that okay no the people who aren't willing to at least have a discussion around accepting who i am naturally probably don't belong in my life uh, i'm grateful for the time that they were there for but um, maybe it's time for us to move on and this just gives me that uh, indicator that okay it is time uh, so it's it's been a very uh, tough a very large pill to swallow but uh, over time you realize that it is perhaps uh, the best thing to do so this was on the personal front uh, but now on the professional front it's been a whole separate journey altogether uh, so initially being an independent field based researcher uh, there it's still to some degree all right you know you're still working with a very small set of people just whoever supervising you and maybe one or two other people and these people have been comfortable telling uh, not always but most of the times uh, but there's always this fear especially as you start working in any organization be it a small ngo large ngo um, and i'm certain it's there for people working in government agencies um, and even large academic institutions or whatever that you know once people find out uh, my career is going to get sabotaged uh, because there is quite a bit of a queer ceiling um, perhaps not as much as the glass ceiling for women 
uh, as a man, I'm sure I don't face as much uh, discrimination there, but but it is there. Uh, so initially, it was a bit bothersome. Uh, and over time, I've come to realize that the learning, the, the lesson that I've had in my personal life that, okay, um, you need to see this as a sign to let go, is something I can also apply to my professional life. You know, if I'm in a space where people are going to either not give me opportunities or target me or harass me or even even something as simple as ostracize me it may, may not be necessarily malicious, but it may come to a point where people are like, oh, I don't want to be around this person at all. Uh, if, if any of these things are true for the environment at my workplace, perhaps that's not the workplace for me. Uh, it's certainly not uh, very good for my career development if um, I'm not allowed to be who I am. Uh, so in a nutshell, I feel like this is where uh, uh, what, what the journey has been. And today I feel fortunate enough um, to be able to say that I'm out to almost everybody. I'm out to anybody that matters. My parents know, my closest friends know, um, everybody at work that I'm close to and that I work directly with knows. Uh, and it's it's quite a privilege, uh, to be honest, uh, uh, to be at this stage. But uh, it's something I'm also very grateful for. No, absolutely. I think the fact that you've been able to do this step by step and actually find um, the spaces to draw some of those boundaries and take some of those very hard decisions. Um, and also relatively, again, bringing that time, you know, the time spent uh, before and after coming out. And you think about that, it's a lot that has happened in a short burst of time. Uh, so... I'm so happy for you that you have some of those circles now and those spaces, even though I'm sure it's taken a lot to get to this point. And like you said, it's not the end of the journey. And I'm sure this, this is going to be something we're constantly navigating. Um, but I also now want to kind of shift gears into some of that fantastic work that you've actually done and where you found these people and these spaces so you've done a lot of really fun and exciting projects in the marine space. And I would love to go over these one by one. Let's let's start right at the idea that first blossomed in 2015 and your first foray into doing a full-fledged marine research project with dolphins. So tell us a bit about that work. Yeah, thanks. Uh, so this is also something that uh, has has um, at least to me quite an interesting story around it because I remember after I decided uh, that I want to do uh, wildlife conservation, uh, I, I I see I, I used to see a lot of these people around me who used to tell me things like oh you know I'm so interested in hornbills I'm going to dedicate my entire life to it and kudos to them like you need people like that you know who are in one landscape or studying one species building their entire lives around uh, one species or habitat or location or whatever it is. That's the one of the best kinds of conservation out there. Uh, but one thing I also realized with myself is that uh, I tend to be someone who wants to have it all. Uh, I don't want to be boxed in as, oh, he's that dolphin guy, or he is that octopus person, or whatever it may be. I I, I knew it was marine, but within that, I, I didn't feel like uh, I wanted to really... Uh, super specialized beyond that. We're already in a very niche field, the marine wildlife conservation, and going any further just felt unnecessary. Uh, so it started in, like you said, 2015, uh, in the middle of my master's, uh, we had to do a little thesis. 
And even then, um, I, I was taking, I want to have it all to the extreme. I said, okay, I'm either going to work in marine or I'm going to work on dry arid grasslands. So both ends of this wide, wide spectrum of uh, landscapes, uh, habitats rather that we have. And <clears throat> I most recently volunteered with uh, the Kungan Citation Research Team. Uh, they're now very good friends of mine, uh, but uh, they are a group of uh, researcher conservationists that have been working along the Konkan, studying dolphins for the longest time and building these very crucial baselines uh, that didn't exist before they and a few other people in the country started working on it. Uh, and I realized that, okay, this is, I, I found myself being extremely engaged uh, while I was volunteering with them. Uh, I, I, I was extremely excited about doing that kind of work. Uh, so I said, okay, let's let's try this out. Uh, let's let's see if this works. Uh, so I decided to do my thesis on dolphins. And um, being a conservationist, I feel like you have to involve people. You cannot be a pure uh, a biologist uh, or a pure wildlife ecologist. At some point, uh, people have to factor in, even if it's just one column of data, they're going to be there. Uh, ideally, it should be a lot more at least 50% if not more, but even if that one column uh, is there, it, it, it's, it's, it's something. Uh, so I decided to study uh, how dolphins, the, the, the Indian Ocean humpback dolphin, Susa Plumbia in particular, uh, how they interact with the fishing gear at uh, the Vembanad Lake in Kochi. And I built this idea based on some work that was coming from across the country uh, similar work had been done on the same species of dolphins in Ashtamudi, which said that they do have some kind of uh, interaction with the cast nets over there. And someone else, uh, I, I think two people actually, had uh, captured this really lovely uh, interaction between the Iravati dolphins and the stake nets in, in Odisha uh, at Chilika Lake. It's, it's, it's quite something. Um, if, if people want to learn something, even if it's one thing about dolphins, I'd recommend you look up the Odisha dolphins in Chilika. It's, it's my favorite species in India. But uh, I had all I had these two to begin with and a bunch of other studies from across the world. And I realized that, okay, there could be something. I could end up with zero interaction, although I had some reason to believe there was something. I'd spoken to a few fishers and they told me that, okay, no, no, we at least use the dolphins as cues to know when to... Uh, either cast our nets if they're using cast nets or lift the nets if they're using the Chinese dip nets. Uh, so I said, okay, let's let's see the entire smorgasbord of interactions that happen over there. And it was quite something. And I feel everybody's first foray into field data collection is just, I don't know, just life altering. It makes you question everything you've done. You're like, do I even want to be here? Does this make sense? Who am I? Where am I? Uh, but uh, it was just learnings that I had to incorporate into my work. One thing I realized that if I wanted to look at dolphin behavior in particular, so dolphins, uh, this, I was lucky that this was a fairly surface active species as far as marine mammals go. But even then, you know, there's only so much of their day-to-day -day behavior that you can observe. It's not like a terrestrial species where for some of them, you can see them all the time, or at least you can hear them all the time. And acoustics was just about up and coming. Uh, back in 2016, um, only a few people had worked on marine mammal acoustics at the time. Um, so I, I didn't want to burden myself more with that. So I said, I'll just do visual observations. And four months, which is what is given to you, um, 
system for um, the data collection part of your master's thesis just isn't enough. Uh, and even on the other side, to capture the whole range of uh, people's perspectives, their stories, their ecological knowledge, it's just not enough. Uh, four months isn't e even enough for you to build that rapport that uh, you require to have these conversations with people in the first place. Uh, so all great learnings. Uh, I tried to see if I could publish some of that data, but it, it just wasn't enough uh, information to say anything uh, conclusive. Uh, so I said, okay, fine. You know what? Let's let's move on. Let's let's see what else I can do. And uh, a, a, a batchmate of mine, a friend of mine, um, she had this little pet project which spiraled from her master's thesis. We were batchmates in uh, the masters, but she wanted to go look at octopus behavior in the Andaman Islands. Uh, this is just after our masters. I think we started early 2017, uh, if I'm not wrong. And uh, I said that, okay, this is perfect, you know, uh, it, it's marine, it's a behavior, and it's a species which is really fascinating. Uh, the octopuses, the group of species, rather, they're, they're, um, we're only just learning about how advanced they are in terms of personality and just everything, the entire gamut of behavior that they can display. Uh, I feel like the early behavioral ecologists who said that anthropomorphization is a cardinal sin uh, should should just be sent away and slapped and forgotten. Uh, it's it's it, it's wrong to say things like this because quite honestly, when I was down there collecting data on octopus behavior, um, it felt like the octopuses were also looking back at me in the eyes, uh, and not just like say um, a larger insect or something would. Uh, you could tell that there was some thought process, there was a lot of curiosity over there. There was, in some cases, some individuals were a little more boisterous. They would come up closer and they would try and punch out. Um, and some were a lot more timid. Um, and again, unfortunately, at the end of an entire season of data collection, we were fortunate enough to get, I, if I, I mean, if memory serves well, we observed at least 10 individuals five times each uh, in terms of our sample size and a lot of random observations, uh, underwater behavioral observations. But um, even then we realized that this is really not enough. Uh, and to study something this complex, uh, it's going to be hard to tease apart all the external stimuli that are there down uh, in the ocean when you're going underwater. So are they really responding to your behavioral assays? Are they responding to you? Uh, or are they just responding to anything else? And when there is no response, um, does it mean that there is genuinely no response? Or is there no response that we can detect, given that they're so complex in the communication? They use chemical signals um, to communicate quite often. So maybe there were things we just weren't picking up on. So there again, my friend decided to take it up for her PhD. And um, like I said, this wasn't something I wanted to commit my life to. So I said, okay, let's let's maybe move on to the next uh, thing. Uh, and I went back into marine mammals, but this was just uh, more um, people engagement. So it was uh, the beginnings of a consortium back in 2017, which is now the Marine Mammal Consortium of India. Uh, we are an up and coming informal body of marine mammal um, practitioners, uh, conservation practitioners, so anybody, research, policy, whatever it may be. Uh, uh, it, the, the 2017 was when it really started, and I was coordinating that for a bit. But I knew I needed a little more field experience. So then I went and joined another NGO called the Dutchin Foundation. I'm sure a lot of people 
uh, on your podcast term either work there or have definitely heard about them. They are the pioneers in marine research and conservation in India. Uh, so I said, okay, well, well, uh, better to work than with them. Uh, and they had an opening in Ganjam, which is one of their oldest uh, things. Um, they've been studying uh, the uh, olive ridley turtles over there for the longest time, for more than 10 years now. Uh, and I thought that, okay, this is great. Uh, I don't have that misfortune of oh, not enough data. Uh, people have been doing it for 10 years already. Uh, so we know some amount uh, about the ecology over there. So I said, okay, this, this sounds amazing. And it was wonderful. Uh, we, we were doing a lot of these surveys um, at night uh, to look at uh, whether female turtles were coming uh, on the beach to, to nest, uh, when they were coming, how many eggs they'd lay. And there was also a little bit of a collaboration with the Odisha State Forest Department uh, uh, where they would relocate some of the nests to kind of um, uh, heighten the survival rate uh, for these animals and also study them a little bit, you know, understand what the uh, natural, quote-unquote, natural survival rate uh, could be. So we understand what conservation initiatives need to be put into place. There's a lot of um, sex determination also because we know that as temperatures rise, uh, the temperature-linked sex of these uh, hatchlings is going to get impacted and it is going to impact their uh, population uh, over time. So this was um, what I did next. And after that, uh, an opportunity came up at my current place. Uh, I worked at Dutchman for a year and then um, I heard that the Wildlife Conservation Society India was starting uh, their marine program and I was over the moon. I said that, okay, they're a big NGO uh, and they've done some pretty good work uh, in the past. That They've done some pretty good work, but I, I said that, okay, what, what better place to be? I can help set up an entire program. Uh, I certainly wasn't leading it. Uh, I was too young uh, to be leading it four years ago when I joined, but uh, I said, okay, this is great. I can be involved in everything that I'm interested in. You know, this seems like it's going to be a large program that's going to work on multiple things. I get to be involved in the admin side of things also in terms of fundraising, reporting, um, and also understand a lot of the on-ground uh, conservation action because this is the Wildlife Conservation Society. So whatever research we do tends to be very applied. Um, and I've been on the marine program ever since. Uh, so I've spent uh, the last four years now, almost exact uh, to uh, the date that we're recording this right now. Uh, and I've had, I've, again, here I've been fortunate. Uh, I've been involved in almost every vertical that the marine program has. Uh, we started off with marine protected areas at Angria Bank, which is a submerged plateau about 100 kilometers offshore of uh, Goa um, and maybe southern Maharashtra. Uh, but designating this, helping the Indian government rather designate this as a marine protected area uh, seemed amazing because um, we would not be excluding anybody from harvesting resources that they should have a right to. Uh, it's so far out. It's a submerged plateau, which is maybe 40 to 50 meters at its deepest uh, and 650 square kilometers of it. So fishers don't typically go there because their nets get damaged. Uh, so we were like, oh, this is perfect. Uh, we, we aren't being uh, exclusionary in our approach at all. Uh, we do have this uh, kind of value of um, people with the wildlife. We do want to help safeguard livelihoods uh, while we're protecting uh, the wildlife as well. 
So it started off there, and after that, uh, the megafaunal bycatch uh, vertical was also a thing that I spent a little time on. I think maybe just under a year, perhaps, where uh, I was helping again set it up over there. Uh, we what what that vertical really does it looks at all the incidental and um, what's the word the opportunistic uh, capture of some of the non-target species. So fisheries uh, will target all your edible fish, um, but quite often things like turtles, marine mammals do get caught, um, and for no fault of the fisher. Uh, it's just that gear are going to be non-selective, whatever gear you use. Uh, so uh, this. I mean, and then this kind of bycatch is one of the global uh, uh, threats uh, to marine mammal populations, one of the larger threats. So this is what they were doing. And currently what I do is I co-manage the sharks and rays thing, which isn't too far away from the megafaunal bycatch, but it just focuses on uh, the elasmobranx. Uh, and what we're trying to do right now is uh, just... A, help build some of these baselines. We are not the first people to do it, uh, but we want to go about it with a certain kind of rigor for a certain amount of time to be able to tell for with, with absolute certainty that, okay, these are the species being caught from these areas, and this is what we can potentially do about it. So that is one side of things that we're doing. And we're also trying to help a lot of the other stakeholders understand, you know, and these stakeholders aren't just your... Um, government authorities, it's also the other NGOs, and just the general population of people who may consume uh, elasmobranchs. Uh, but, but helping them understand that you cannot look at elasmobranch conservation the same way you do tiger conservation. Uh, tiger uh, hunting uh, or poaching is very, very often, almost all the time targeted. People go in with this aim that, yes, I want to sell the skin or the bones or whatever it is, and I will go uh, into this animal's habitat and do that. But with sharks and rays, most of the time, that's not the case. You know, in our sites, less than, uh, I think, 4 or 5% of it is targeted. All of the rest of it is just incidental capture in terms of elasmobranc landings. So we want to help people understand that. So in terms of whatever we do, whether it's policy, enforcement, uh, bottom-up uh, uh, community outreach, and engagement as well, uh, this really has to precede everything. The fact that it is not targeted, it is incidental, so you cannot approach it in the same way. You have to be a lot more mindful of the people, uh, especially given that marine spaces are uh, a production landscape. It's not like a protected uh, national protected area, like a forest or whatever, uh, a national park rather, or a sanctuary uh, where you can just have boundaries drawn, you know, that, okay, if it's a national park in the code, you just don't go. It's a marine space. Even if you have a large MPA, your target species and even the non-target species are going to move around. They don't know it's an MPA. Uh, so there's a lot of nuance that is required, and we're currently trying to navigate around that. So that that is, is I think, um, not in so much of a tight nutshell uh, what I've been doing professionally in the last uh, eight years. Oh. Wow, that is that is quite a journey, Avik. Oh my gosh, that was amazing. Uh, I I mean, you just ticked off a whole bunch of things I wanted to ask you about, and I'm so glad you did that because now I have context to uh, go in deeper and ask you more questions about some of this work. But I genuinely relate so much to some of the things you said, even right at the beginning about 
you know, just wanting to do it all while being in such awe of those who do long-term work. And I think I personally am still very torn because I feel the reason I got into this field was the people who spent decades just nesting in one area and telling you everything you need to know about a certain landscape or a certain species and engaging with conservation there and everything and just giving their whole lives to it. But I have so much active fear of missing out in terms of wanting to do so much more. And I think maybe for us, it's also the case because like you were saying, a lot of what you're doing now also is not that it's all very novel. Sometimes it is novel and you're the one setting up that baseline. And there are times where other people have done this and you're just filling in the gaps. So I think increasingly now it's so much work being done across the globe. You have, you don't have as much opportunity even to go and nest in the same way that people did in the last century. So uh, so definitely relate to a lot about, uh, you know, in terms of that and never having enough time and wanting to dig that much deeper into every single project you embark on but not always perhaps even having the opportunity to do that uh you know it's not always feasible um but i'm also really interested in what you said about some of the octopus work and anthropomorphism because i find myself aligning uh with your thoughts that of course because i mean it's a i think it's a lot more obvious with primates uh that i have the fortune of working with where the anthropomorphism is that much closer but i really want to know more about what it was like for you to actually be face to face with octopuses you know what was that work like and what exactly were you doing while you were there uh, because yeah, I, I fully agree. I think it's it is almost irresponsible to chalk up every interesting behavior to anthropomorphism because that's that's just a cop out. That's an easy way out. I mean, we have we share so many characteristics with a lot of species, and it's lovely to know that you were kind of scratching the surface of that and getting hints at more and more of that. So yeah, that's that's my first uh, nuance question for you. <laughs> Yeah, um, I think uh, in terms of the ecological research, this is definitely uh, the most interesting thing I've done in the past. Uh, and I owe it all to my friend uh, Aditi Pofle. Um, it, it, it's her brainchild. I will take no credit for it. I was assisting her on it. Uh, and together what we wanted to do was uh, kind of delve into this emerging field of animal personalities. Uh, you know, traditional behavioral ecology just never touched upon that. Uh, it was just, you you have a stimulus and you have a response to that stimulus. There is hardly anything else happening around that and everything else is innate, uh, whether it be feeding, whether it be uh, fear, whether it be mating, um, everything is just innate and there's no scope for variation. But um, in the last 20 odd years, I would say people have, 20 to 30 years, people have uh, begun opening up this idea that, no, we aren't the only species out here with uh, personalities um, and with these really intricate thought processes or whatever it may be. Uh, so we went in to look at it in the wild. And before we had done that, uh, all the behavioral studies, all of the personality studies, the assays that had been done were done only in the lab. Uh, and the advantage to that is that it helps you really control your environment. So earlier I did mention that 
we were unsure of things like external stimuli. So this just kills that. You control light, temperature, uh, salinity, um, whatever it may be. You can control every single thing there is uh, in that octopus's environment. But we also wanted to look at it from an ecological lens to see how uh, what we're learning about octopus personalities uh, um, could potentially play out um, in the wild, in their habitat. So we picked the octopus sign here, which is the Pacific Day octopus. Uh, and it's found in a lot of places uh, along the Indian coast, but uh, the Andamans just worked out in terms of a lot of the logistics, in terms of where people said that uh, you can find them very frequently enough, um, at least frequently enough, if not uh, more than that. Uh, so we were based on Neil Island in 2017, and we used to dive around there, and we did explore a little bit of Havelock as well. Uh, but all our work was entirely underwater. We take a couple of GoPros with us, and the cool thing about this octopus is that it is it has high side fidelity. It uh, builds a den uh, once it's past um, the the tiny little larval morph stage. Uh, once it's a little bit um, of a recognizable adult octopus, it builds a den. Uh, and for the most part, it will stick to the den until it dies in about a year's time uh, after that. Uh, but uh, it just made our lives easier, you know, because if you want to understand personality, you need to go back to the same individual multiple times. You need to have repeat samplings of one individual to make sure that, okay, if I feel like I'm, I'm going to maybe water it down a little bit, but let's say if... Uh, one of my hypotheses was that individual A is a little more cranky than individual B, and individual B is a lot more happy-go-lucky. Uh, I need a lot more than one observation to say that. Uh, so when you have something like an octopus, how do you even identify it if you have like four identical octopuses in front of you? They have no unique markings. We didn't want to go and take DNA and be that invasive where we impact their behavior. So, okay, let's identify the dens and let's go about it that way. And it worked out for the most part because um, we did identify at least 10 dens if memory serves well. And we did manage to get our five recordings of these individuals. It was quite fun because we used to give them names um, based on uh, what we felt uh, the uh, animal was like. So we started off with some very, uh, to us, cool sounding names like uh, Bowie and whatnot. And then we went on to uh, Lela and Majnu and we saw a pair uh, that uh, didn't quite make it to mating. Uh, the male wanted it. Uh, the female octopus was just like, sorry, nothing doing. You're not worth my time. Uh, but yeah, it was very exciting because it also helped me build on my diving. Uh, I was uh, certified to a degree before that, but I got my rescue certification uh, at this point, um, <clears throat> um, no, sorry, I also got my advanced uh, at this point. I, so I got two certificates during this work. Uh, so it was a wonderful opportunity for me to go and do this. Uh, and um, while I was also doing that, I got to kind of be underwater uh, three to five days a week for, I think, what, four or five months the entire season that we were there. Uh, and just really observe these animals up close. And Getting into the meat of the matter, the real question that uh, I, I feel you actually wanted me to answer was their personalities. They're so diverse. Uh, you'd have, you'd see these really, really tiny octopuses, which would be maybe four or five inches big, you know, and the dens are also really, really tiny, just enough to fit them. Uh, they, they would eventually expand it over time, but 
if we see two or three individuals like that, we think that, oh, no, they're all going to be very skittish because they're all so small. They all would want to uh, avoid potential predators. But then we'd have one that just didn't care that we were around in the very first instance. Uh, it, I, I feel like it knew that we'd, we'd spotted it because we were pointedly staring at it. We had our uh, GoPro uh, mounted uh, facing it about, I think, uh, a meter or two away from it, but it's still very um, perceivable. Uh, so it knew we were there and didn't care. One was definitely skittish and one was very scrappy. It uh, tried punching us. It was just four or five inches big and it did try punching us. Uh, <laughs> and we had quite a laugh uh, once we uh, went back on the boat uh, after the dive that over. Uh, that, that little thing really knows how to fend for itself. Uh, but yeah, it, it, it was quite interesting to see how... Uh, complex these uh, uh, animals really are and I, I I do hope Aditi has had better luck than we did out in the wild. I know she wanted to do this uh, for her PhD and so that's a lot more time. Uh, I do believe she has the advantage of a lab uh, plus uh, wild habitat very close to the lab to look at both sides of it which we didn't. So hopefully in a few years we'll learn a lot more um, about um, what these animals really are. I feel like they're very, very cryptic. We know barely anything about them so far. That, that's, yeah, I think in a nutshell, what we learned about the octopuses after a year was that we know nothing about them. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so hopefully we, we have more findings soon. Oh, I love that you said that, Avik. I think that's such an exciting part of uh, doing this very in-depth, observational, qualitative sort of work where you just realize how much you don't know. And uh, it sounds like that's the case for you. But like for me as well, whenever this happens and I realize how much I don't know, it just makes it that much more exciting um, and and that much more enticing to go back and keep searching but that's so exciting to also know that Aditi is continuing this work and hopefully I can uh, have her on the podcast at some point when she has more results as well. I'd love to know where the story goes uh, and so glad that more work is being done here. So Avik, what do these dens look like? How do they make these dens and what do they make them out of? So at least the ones that we saw, uh, they were mostly random pieces of rubble piled up onto each other, maybe in front of some kind of natural cavity. So like um, live coral, dead coral rocks or whatever it may be, uh, tend to have these little natural small crevices um, as a result of their shape and, and size and whatnot. Uh, but what octopuses will typically do is they will collect a bunch of these broken uh, dead coral pieces, rock fragments, um, and they'll pile it onto each other. And what is your real telltale sign is that you will see a lot of crustacean shells also uh, apart, being a part of the den and around the den because that is their primary diet for the species at least. And the way to confirm it is if you obviously don't want to go and poke your um, finger or your camera uh, into the den, um, if you want some confirmation, the best way to do it is to um, just inspect some of these uh, crustacean shells. They could be mollusks, crabs, small crabs or whatever. And if they have an almost perfect circular puncture hole through the shell, uh, you know it is very, very likely an octopus because that, that comes from the only hard part an octopus has, which is the beak, uh, which is underneath all the arms. 
so they tend to encircle their uh, prey and then they bite uh, a little hole into the shell and then they just scoop out whatever flesh they can get. Uh, and most of the times we just see the octopus there, which is also our telltale sign. So this species doesn't tend to venture too far away from their dens once they've identified it. Uh, so once you see an octopus, uh, you if you hang around for long enough, you don't even have to be diving. If you're in the shallows, uh, you can even just snorkel. Uh, and um, you can spot it from above sometimes. It's a bit harder because you're looking at more of a two-dimensional uh, top-down image as opposed to like a three-dimensional front-facing view. Uh, but uh, you... If you, if you stick around for long enough, it will go back to its den. And then you can just um, mark it on your GPS and know that, okay, this is where the animal's den is. But it's it's quite cute. Um, these, these little piles, I, I don't even know how else to describe it. There's just like, you know, when we are kids and we want to build castles um, and you don't have sand to do that, you just pile rocks together. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's this conical thing uh, quite often. Or sometimes it's just like a mound of rubble but but that's essentially what they look like oh that's very interesting thanks for that and as vivid as your description is for those listening we uh, we also uh, did a brilliant hand uh, imitation of what the octopuses look like (laughs) Um... (laughs) oh yeah i forgot that that's not visible to people (laughs) no that was that was so brilliant avik also you know you since you mentioned diving uh, I must ask you to tell us more about your Angria Bag expedition because that is just so incredible. The fact that you got to be part of that initial process of setting up a marine program from scratch and that one of the first really big pro- projects you all embarked on was having a place declared as a marine protected area. And clearly a lot of work went into that but also included this really exciting expedition so tell us a bit about that as well yeah the expedition is usually uh the best thing about wcs india and and, and what a wonderful way to start off my career here on it was literally the first assignment uh we were given as a team we were a small team at the time just four people and now i've lost count with either 17 or 18 or something like that. It's hard to keep track of how many there are. But back then, it was just four of us. And we knew that, okay, um, based on a bunch of uh, secondary research that we've done, we've realized that, okay, Angre Bank is low-hanging fruit uh, for um, facilitating a notification of an MPA. Uh, India is also a signatory to uh, the UN's IG targets, uh, one of them being that we have to protect a certain percentage uh, of uh, our water's jurisdiction uh, by, I forget the year, it was 2020. Uh, but uh, this would have just helped, you know, as I mentioned, it was 650 square kilometers, uh, just the plateau itself, not the buffer that we were proposing around it, uh, of what could still be an MPA, it's still in the works with the uh, central government at the moment, but all we knew is that we had to do this, and to, in order to do this, uh, what some of the uh, folks at the central government had told us is that, okay, we need a lot of ecological information first, uh, we need to know what species are there, we need to know what roughly what the habitats are like uh, before we invest so much of our time, money, manpower, everything into making an MPA here. So we said, okay, let's do an expedition. 
And then we realized that, okay, we can't go on a small boat. We have to take a large boat because it's a good 100 kilometers offshore. We cannot have just four people. We need to expand. We have to be a big team uh, to really maximize on the amount of time uh, that you can potentially have over there. We'd spoken. So we weren't the first people to go there. I think we were maybe the fifth or the sixth people to ever visit uh, this uh, submerged plateau. Uh, but the people who had been there told us that, okay, you know, the currents get very crazy because it's so far out. It's practically at the, at the western edge of the continental shelf uh, of the uh, of, of the Indian Peninsula. Uh, so you, you would be completely ravaged by the currents if you don't plan it well. Uh, so they told us that, you know what, you have maybe a three-week window sometime December could be January, could be February, but you only have this window. Uh, and you just go there and you may have bad weather, you may have current, but be there and wait it out. So the first thing we had to do was put a team together, find a ship, and we were fortunate enough to do that. I feel like most of the team was also very excited because how many times do people get an opportunity to go to uh, a place as uh, non-accessible, inaccessible rather, as this? Uh, so we had a team of what 14 people. Um, again, my I'm, I'm not remembering things too well, but it was a pretty large team of all divers. Uh, and once they, I mean, once once we passed that barrier of the fact that they were divers, they were quite diverse in what else they did. Uh, you had a lot of dive instructors, you know, because we need those uh, expertise. We need those people to look after the group, so to speak. If anything goes awry, we need people with years and years of diving experience under their belt. Uh, and you don't often get that with your uh, ecological uh, know-how. Um, what we also had were filmmakers uh, who had uh, underwater housing for a couple of cameras. Uh, and uh, this is George Obi Films. They've done a wonderful short little uh, documentary on it. Uh, and the thing is, we realized that if we are doing something like this, there is no point in writing white papers and draft notifications. Even if we wanted to publish data or write a popular article, the best way to get a message out would be through visuals. And lo and behold, we had this team of very, very, very uh, experienced uh, and extremely enthusiastic um, filmmakers with us. So we went there, we were a very diverse team, and what we, we, we even got a boat finally after lots of looking around. Uh, the Center for Marine Learning, uh, sorry, I'm forgetting the full name, but CMLRE, uh, which is based in Kochi, uh, they have a couple of research vessels, which are these really large 40-meter trawlers. They used to be trawlers, but they're used only for research. Uh, and... It's great because it it had a doctor on board, it had a proper captain, it had literally everything like a, a, a set of kitchen staff. So we didn't have to worry about uh, things like that. Uh, so everything just somehow fell into our laps at that point. And we went and we did it after, I think, six months of going back and forth, back and forth about whether it's a good investment of our time uh, and whether anything would work out at all, just suddenly did as it usually does in, in our field. Like for the longest time, it'll look like nothing's going to work out and then suddenly everything goes your way all at once. And yeah, we were there. Uh, it took what I think uh, we had to leave from Kochi because that is where the uh, ship, uh, similarly ships are docked. 
but uh, we left from there and it took a day and a half to two days just to reach uh, Angria Bank. And we used that time to kind of uh, get everybody acclimatized to what kind of data we'd be collecting. We did a few mock drills on deck. It's obviously not the same as doing it underwater, but everybody there was a great diver. So we said that, okay, you know what, we'll just do it on deck and show people. And, and then once we go in water, the first day we'll go into showing people how we do it underwater. Uh, so we we went and we collected a real plethora of information. Uh, we were looking at what kind of uh, benthic habitats are there uh, in terms of either rocky substrate, coral, sand, algae, whatever it may be. Uh, we had fish counts, we had invertebrate counts, uh, but we really got this very, very rich set of preliminary information. Uh, which tells us that this definitely is a place worth uh, protecting. And uh, I think what I'm all of us on that ship were most, most fortunate to be doing, uh, uh, I mean, what makes us most fortunate is the fact that Angria Bank Coral is very unlike what you see anywhere else. There's hardly any bleaching damage. You know, most of the coral in our country and across the world has suffered bleaching damage, if not that. Uh, there's been unplanned tourism, and if not that, there's been unplanned fishing even. You'll find uh, fishing nets, you'll find fishing lines also quite often entangled in coral. Uh, but there's none of that over here. It was, and I hate this word normally because I feel like it doesn't exist, but it was pristine. Uh, and we realized that, okay, this this is definitely a place worth protecting. Now, I forget how many species and all uh, we actually went and documented, but it was several hundred, if memory serves well, and this is counting all the fish, invertebrates, coral, everything that we could identify. So it it was certainly more than everything else along the West Coast, uh, comparable to places like uh, Lakshadweep, if not even more. Um, so yeah, in an, in in brief, uh, that that was Angria Bank. Wow. Oh, I'm just trying to visualize a lot of this as you were saying it, and. What an incredible experience to have had and to have been a part of. That's that's awesome. And the and to know that it's actually, you know, the gears are turning and that this place is actively being protected right now and we're working towards getting it in even better uh status of protection. I think that is just fantastic. And to know that you also had such a blast doing it is just a lovely <laughs> icing on the cake. Thanks for kind of giving us that entire overview of what it's been like in the marine sphere. And you've also clearly covered a lot of uh, ground, so to speak, <laughs> even when underwater. And, uh, you know, I also want to now come back into what we were talking about earlier in terms of our own identities, because so much happened so quickly on both fronts, right? And... Uh, I think it's fantastic that you had the opportunity to do so many diverse things, even as you were gradually coming out to people, testing the waters and seeing who you can kind of be safe with. Um, and I think in the process of doing that and the fact that, you know, we've um, had to come out to people in small ways or big ways uh, through our professional journey as well, uh, has also made us realize what, spaces we need and what kind of support we need as queer people in the wildlife arena and uh, you and I are of course part of 
the trio that is kind of managing incredulously large bunch of queer wildlifers who come together periodically to chat about things, have meetings, uh, and kind of provide support to each other. And uh, we've both outed ourselves in an attempt to make more space for queer wildlifers, right? And to incorporate policy clauses for LGBTQIA plus identifying individuals in our own workspaces. And there's a lot to be said for that because on one hand, our own plight and our own lived experiences make us want to be more vocal. And I think especially being in this field, a lot of people are are already, they have a little activist within them, right? There's this purpose of wanting to change the world for the better. And professionally, a lot of it has to do with, of course, wildlife and like, yes, we need to protect the angrier back, you know, but that kind of spirit also comes through in our more uh, personal experiences about our identity and knowing that we need better spaces there. And we that, but to have the same amount of gung-ho spirit also means that, we have to make ourselves a lot more vulnerable and have to say that, no, this is who I am and this is why I care so much and this is why you need to listen to me and pay attention to me and I'm not just a heteronormative person who is kind of caring about this in an inconvenient way for you. So um, what has that been like for you? And uh, how is it going? You know, you're now in your fourth year at WCS and somewhere along this journey, you have come out in your workspace as well and have also been working towards getting more queer representation and better policies within the org, which is the same board that I've been in at the Center for Wildlife Studies. So uh, I think that's been interesting for me, of course, and I'd love to know what it's been like for you. Yeah, so... Thanks for that uh, little bit of an introduction on the topic because you've touched upon so many uh, important points and I wish we had the time to talk about all of it, but I think a couple of things that would be high priority is the entire uh, coming out professionally journey. And uh, I, again, here now have to thank you and the third friend that you mentioned, a very dear friend, um, a lot uh, for initiating this queer circle and I'm very, very happy to be uh, a part of uh, the kind of facilitation group uh, over here. But I feel like this itself has also accelerated my journey quite a bit. Uh, before that, it was a lot harder to come out to people. I had to think a hundred times, you know, before I really did tell anybody anything or even hint that, you know, I, I am um, gay. Uh, I, even if I'm not gay, I am some degree of queer. Uh, but being a part of this queer circle has really helped because it's really opened my eyes about how many of us there really are. Back in 2015, when I first acknowledged to myself that uh, I am gay, I thought that, oh, you know, I am the only gay boy in all of India's wildlife conservation scene. And... I'm so glad that I could not be further from the truth. There's so, so many of us and we will always be a subset, you know. Uh, we will not, unfortunately, have everybody. There are going to be people who aren't out to themselves. There are going to be people who don't want to come out to other people and a small faction of people who may not have heard of it. But uh, that's something we can definitely work on. But... This has really helped, and at WCS, um, especially after being a part of this queer circle, uh, I have been coming out a lot more to a lot 
more people um, in the past two to three years. Uh, and it's gone extremely well. And I think that is the real advantage to doing it. You know, um, we have to be careful. Yes, in some workspaces, you don't want to scream it from the rooftops. You don't want to tell everybody. You have to be a little smart, unfortunately, about whom you approach uh, in your workspace. Uh, because who knows that there are people who may uh, harbor some kind of bias and it may impact your career and you, you just don't want to deal with that. So you do have to be a little picky, but I feel very glad because I don't think I've really had to do that too much at uh, WCS India here. Uh, I, I've, I've told uh, the person I report to, the country director, almost everybody on my team that I work with closely knows uh, and one thing I'm extremely thankful to all of them is that they're not weird about it. Uh, even uh, the people who identify as uh, um, heterosexual uh, and, and identify as a gender that they were assigned uh, at birth uh, through their sex, uh, they, they, they just aren't weird about it at all. Uh, in the past, I, I do realize that there have been people... Uh, especially the men. Um, for me as a gay man, I see a lot of this insecurity in some men. But they're like, oh, what if uh, he develops feelings for me? And what if uh, all our friendship and all the jokes that we've made had a sexual connotation to it and all. But I think over time, A, as people also grow up um, like physically in, in their age and as we progress also um, as Indian society, people are becoming a lot more accepting and open to this. And it can only happen through people like you and I and several others on the queer circle who are out and about. It can only happen when we do this. When we go and be a bastion for the queer community and tell people that, look, we are A, not choosing to be like this. It is not a choice. It is encoded in who we are. We don't know whether it's genetics, whether it's earlier bringing, but fact of the matter is it's not something we can change uh and the second thing is that we are not aberrations you know we are not uh like disadvantages uh genetically speaking or whatever it is the fact that um uh homosexuality exists in nearly every animal that we've been able to observe uh, shows that there is some value to this as a strategy uh, we still don't know why one of the biggest mysteries, uh, the, the, the gay uncle, gay aunt uh, uh, hypothesis is uh, one of uh, uh, everybody's leading favorite hypotheses right now. But uh, we don't know. Uh, but uh, from people like you, me and the rest of us being out and about, showing people that, listen, it's okay to sit next to a gay person. We're not going to like molest you or harass you or make things awkward. We are the same person we were before we came out to you. Uh, uh, it, it it helps a lot. And I've, I've seen that in my own uh, experience where people did come off as very hesitant after I came out uh, to kind of uh, be as friendly uh, as we used to be before I came out. But over time, uh, they learned to accept it. And, and it's just a thing now. Like, it, it's not, like, it's, it's just a part of, who I am to them now. It's it's not um, a major thing that they have to consider anymore. So yeah, it's it's. I, I feel fortunate, and here I do want to end on a bit of a bittersweet note for this thing. Uh, I feel like a lot of my privilege does come from being a straight presenting gay man. Uh, I have been lucky. Uh, I know for a fact that women are not going to be half as lucky 
uh, a lot of women face enough biases already being uh, part of the intersection of being a woman or not being either. You can be uh, uh, any of the other genders that people identify as uh, and being uh, queer in terms of your sexuality does add more of a challenge. And I mean, in India, there's a whole bunch of other privileges that we tend to take for granted, you know, like uh, caste and whatnot also. So uh, I, I... I, I do understand that it's not the same for everybody. I feel extremely privileged and I'm grateful for that. But the way for, I, I at least believe the way for me to use this privilege is to help people. Uh, I, I can be out uh, to quite an extent. Uh, so why not? Why not uh, show people that, listen, we are a queer-friendly workspace. And um, these are what it, this is what it means to be a queer-friendly workspace. You don't, you don't just say you are friendly and stop there. Uh, but yeah. Thanks for that, Avik. And of course, I find myself uh, definitely agreeing, especially with the last bit of what you said, wherein it's not something that one can just assume uh, because sometimes you either need it in writing or you need it from actual living, breathing examples of people around you. And it's not an easy journey and there are, there are people who are going to make it weird, but I guess it is the few who don't make it weird that help a lot. And uh, I absolutely resonate with what you said in terms of just how incredible it is to now have this queer circle of people within the space of wildlife who are queer identifying in any capacity. And it is truly empowering and mind-boggling to know how many of us there are. And, um, you know, our our third co-conspirator as <laughs> part of our wildlife circle facilitators Um you know, when we first started it in, uh, you know, now almost two, two and a half years ago, um, I will never forget that initial conversation that we had, you know, where he said, you know, I think it's just going to be you and me and I don't think anybody else will show up. And since I had spent a little bit more time uh, with a handful of people from our field who I knew were queer and who were also craving that space I just I was very reassuring and I said oh no don't worry I know at least five people will show up and then we ended up with over 40 people and uh, now yeah now we are at 80 80 plus people and this is just India and that is just incredible. And like you were saying, we know that there are more people out there. There are people who are still questioning. They're still figuring it out. There are people who may not even be aware that this group exists yet, even if they are out. And so if this is any kind of indication for how much organizations need to make spaces more explicitly safe for queer people, it's this. You know, I think we, we don't need any more evidence so it's it's really fantastic to have this group and of course if anyone here is listening is a queer identifying wildlife you know there is this group it exists reach out and you know there's a whole bunch of people who are going through similar experiences uh, and there's a lot of support to be drawn there um, so Avik also you mentioned what we as the handful of people who are kind of trying to make these spaces happen for queer people and whether professionally or in the you know non-professional space as well. There's a lot that queer people are doing, of course, to support each other. But what else do you think our allies can do, you know, considering the specific intersection of 
us being from the wildlife space where anyway we have so many fuzzy personal and professional boundaries and where it, things are not as written in stone or as systematic as an entirely corporate work setting. So what do you think our allies can do in this realm? That's 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 a very very good point that you brought up, Ishika. Um, so allies are extremely important for our struggle. Um, even though they are themselves um are not uh, queer identifying, they may have been questioning at some point. But if if they identify as hetero or if they identify as cisgender, uh, they they, they come under the broad ambit of allies. Uh, and they are extremely important in the in terms that they are the ones who have a little more privilege than we do. We touched upon privilege a little bit before, but as someone who is a cis head, uh, you do have a lot more privilege. Use that to your advantage. Use that to queer people's advantage. Uh, speak up for people when you see that maybe a queer person is being ganged up on professionally. Uh, or it may not even be professional. It could be in your friend circle, you know, like uh, people may be ganging up on someone for having come out or whatever. It may be disguised as, oh, we're just poking fun, but it may not actually be fun for the person uh, who is being made fun of. Uh, so really show support, uh, one. And here you have to draw a bit of a fine line. While an ally and any allies listening to this episode I, I, I would really request you to be supportive. One thing you also need to understand is that this is not an allies battle. Uh, it is entirely a queer person's battle. When an ally leads the battle for us, as grateful as we would be for that, it does take the agency away from us. Uh, we need to be doing this for ourselves. And uh, you can see a lot of parallels, say, in women empowerment globally or even the African-American empowerment uh, in the Western world. Uh, you can have the privileged bunch of people. In the first example, it's any man. And in the second example, it is any Caucasian person belonging to those Western countries. Uh, if uh, these people were to lead uh, the movements, uh, it would be their movement. Uh, we would owe it to them. Uh, we don't want that. Uh, we are sure we are queer and we want to do it ourselves. Uh, give us that agency. We And at the same time, I said it's a very fine line. We do want allies' support. Uh, we can only thrive when we know that there is support in terms of acceptance. Uh, if we really break down what this support means, one is people need to be very accepting of who we are. It can be difficult. If you've not heard about uh, queer people or you've not heard about uh, the spectrum of genders uh, that people can identify on, uh, it can be very difficult. It's difficult as a queer person also, you know, like uh, when I was born and when I grew up, there were two genders and now there's, I don't know how many. Uh, it takes time though to unlearn everything, but do get there, do put in the effort, especially if your friend or family member or colleague, someone that you care for is uh, queer, uh, do take the effort and learn about it a little bit. You can ask this person also for resources or just look up online. All of us have mobile phones, laptops, whatever it is. Look up online. There's, there's no dearth of uh, reading material, whether it be scientific literature or fun, popular articles for a wider audience even. Uh, that would be the first thing. And the second thing is don't 
don't cross boundaries with the person that has come out to you. I know a lot of times in your journey to understand uh, which the goal of which is to accept. Uh, along an ally's journey to do that, you will want to ask questions and it's absolutely okay to ask questions, but you need to draw the line at some point here. Not everybody will be comfortable talking about their romantic relationships, for example, uh, and the nitty gritties, the physicalities of it, you know. Um, so don't do that. If you, or, or on the other hand, if you suspect that someone is queer and you want to show your support, don't go and ask them. Uh, they will tell you. What you can do is show signs that you are open uh, to being accepting about it. You know, you can talk about the entire uh, movement that's going on at the Supreme Court, the hearing. You can talk about the global movement also and show that, that hey, you know, um, I totally support this and, and give that person that environment uh, where they feel comfortable coming out to you. And all of us really want to be out of the closet. Uh, there isn't a single queer person who's in the closet by choice. So if provided that environment, more and more of us will uh, start to come out. And third and most, most, most important thing, and this is something that goes for allies and queer people also, is don't out people. Uh, don't, like just because someone has told you that they are queer, don't go and tell somebody else even if that somebody else is a friend of your queer colleague or whoever that person is, uh, it you, again, here you would be taking that power away from us to have this conversation with the person. Why should someone hear about my sexuality from someone else uh, as opposed to from me? Uh, and on the worst end of the spectrum, you don't know what kind of ramifications this could have in the person's personal and professional life. So if someone has come out to you, even if you are in a situation where, say, you want to help them out and you, let's say, for example, you're at your workspace, this is a hypothetical, and uh, you want to build support for a queer colleague who you feel is being targeted for being queer, and you want to go tell um, your managers or your HR department or whoever it is, don't tell these people who that queer person is. Uh, just say that there is somebody who is being targeted. I feel they're being targeted. Uh, maybe you can even, in, in such an example, you can be a mediator. You can help bring that degree of anonymity. Uh, you can relay information between the person that you feel is being targeted to your organization. But what you should never do is just go and tell people that, oh, you know, he told me he's gay or she told me that she identifies as pan or whatever it may be. Uh, just, just don't do that. It's, it's more harmful. And it, like I said, it's, it's not just the allies, it's the queer people also. And I feel sometimes the queer people more because we are trying to be so open. We take it for granted that oh, this person's open with me and with these three other people. So they're definitely open with everybody else. I've had to catch myself accidentally outing people and then have to kind of retract what I say. And I say, okay, no, I'm just not going to speak further. Uh, but it is something we have to be mindful about. But yeah, three things that allies uh, and in one case where people can definitely do is a, be supportive, be understanding to be supportive. Uh, don't out people and let us fight our own battles. Uh, be there for support, but don't take that leadership in our battle away from us. That was fantastic, Avik, and so well articulated. Thank you so much for that. And I think what the brilliance of it is that this is what allies need to and can do every single day. 
you know some of these things might sound inconsequential or might sound like really small things uh which people may not always stop to think about but the ramifications are often longer lasting and uh ramifications of not having this kind of support and it is this everyday tiny bits of support in any kind of way even if it's the small signs like you said of indicating following news that is relevant to the queer population in the country and things like that that really help tell you whether a space is safe or not and i think you really hit the nail on the head with the fact that whoever is in the closet is really there by cho- by you know it's they're not there by choice and that there are many reasons there are there's some reason or the other to be fearful and cautious that causes people to stay there and be there until they know it's safe enough so just to have enough of an environment where you don't feel threatened that itself is is massive so i really hope that people who are listening really listened to, to you know and even in between those lines because what you said there was quite poignant and so so important in our everyday lives and not just uh in big picture big dramatic big gestures but just in in little things that can have support us every day so thanks so much for that avik and also for sharing so much about the fantastic work that you've been doing in the marine sphere and i'm so excited to know what you go to next and to know more about what uh what unravels in the sharks and rays program that you're a part of now as well because oh you already covered such a gamut of things and i and you've already said that you want it all so i can't wait to see <laughs> what happens after this uh but thanks avik my my heart is so full and this was this was beautiful thank you thank you for all that you said and shared Thank you, Ishika, for for giving me the space. I I am like I said right in the start. I am a big follower of your podcast, so I'm, I'm extremely extremely thankful to be featured on it. Uh, and uh, at some point, I feel like you and I are going to overlap professionally, and we should. I think it would be very fun for us to also work together. I'm going to pull you back into the ocean. I know <laughs> you're you're very excited with your uh, primates at the moment, but uh, I I will be the siren. And and then claw you back in to where you truly belong. But yeah, thank <laughs> you for for having me here. It's been fun. Uh, and yeah, looking looking forward uh, to 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 the queer circle uh, up and coming soon. Thanks, Avik. And oh, I I will be a very uh, willing companion in back into the ocean. I don't think you'd have to claw very hard there. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> But yes, lots to look forward to. Thanks for tuning in. This series will continue next Sunday where I am in conversation with Tanisha RK a professional diver and marine biologist turned queer affirming sex educator Join us for this incredibly thought provoking and important episode about queer nature mental health and safety in wildlife spaces next week If you are a queer identifying individual in the fields of ecology or conservation do consider joining the Indian Queer Wildlife Circle to be a part of this group one that respects your anonymity and keeps your identity confidential please write in to me at the thing about wildlife at gmail.com or dm me on any of our socials we are currently a group that is over 80 members strong and we're still growing remember you're not alone and we're all in this together thanks for listening